Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at the time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Grace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Diverse Populations Participating in Decisions About Your Care with Your Healthcare Team. And this is part two of how healthcare disparities may influence your cancer treatment and care. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers-Squibb, Pfizer, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now we have over 110 participants on today's program. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And we're delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to learn more about this really important topic, which really affects so many um, so many people actually and so we're going to try to give you some tips and suggestions of how to deal with this and now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker and our first speaker is dr stuart fleischman dr fleischman is former for, former founding director cancer support services continuum cancer centers of new york author and researcher in oncology <clears throat> and dr fleischman will be addressing how being a member of diverse communities may impact your access to oncology care treatment, management of treatment side effects, and pain management. What to expect from your relationship with your healthcare team. Is your healthcare team providing you with equitable and excellent care? The next, how to request copies of treatment and pathology reports, your encounter notes, key questions to ask your healthcare team about your treatment plan. And lastly, guidelines to improve telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Hello, Dr. Messner, and hello, everyone, and thank you for sharing your time with us. We hope to make it valuable for you. Um, when um, we talk about the, the diversity in our patients, um, it's pretty amazing that uh, we live in such a pluralistic society, and yet even at this time, certain groups are left out of the, um, the, the procedures that we do every day in our offices, in our cancer centers, our hospitals, to be able to make sure that everybody's needs are included. And I was thinking about you know, how this has changed over the years since I've been in practice, and um, I came up with a number of situations where uh, diversity um, may not have been foremost in everybody's mind. And uh, as a group, I think we all learned that we needed to adjust what we did, what we said, how we asked questions, and the information that we um, that, that we communicated back and forth, and that uh, was a good first step, but we're far from having developed a perfect system where um, diversity is, is truly a part of what we do uh, every day and uppermost in our minds. So I, I thought about these situations, and it turned out there was um, uh, a common thread 
to uh, some of them, especially during the diagnosis and treatment. And some of the um, things that were not, some of the things were, were quite visible to us, whether it was skin color or race or gender, but they weren't always exactly what we thought. And I think that brought a number of uh, people who have some implicit bias. It doesn't mean that they think about these things on purpose, but we do all come to our medical encounters with our uh, biases that we have um, just as part of our everyday life. And to get around those, sometimes uh, some deeply personal uh, or uh, sometimes embarrassing uh, or very uncomfortable uh, information has to be uh, exchanged back and forth. Um, so I'm going to go through some of the things that I've experienced in my career and then talk about how maybe uh, the system can um, do better with regards to uh, management of side effects and pain management and then um, how to negotiate all this. So I was thinking back to when I first started in, uh, in uh, after fellowship in cancer and uh, the, the facility that I worked with had a um, mammogram machine that was in a van and went to areas where uh, women often did not get come in and voluntarily uh, ask for mammograms. Their primary care provider wanted it, but they didn't come. And when we sent the van into the neighborhoods, very few women actually availed themselves of an easy and very convenient way to get a mammogram. And it took a lot of time for uh, people to figure out that in that community, because many of the women were older and widowed and they weren't sexually active, they didn't think they need a mammogram. <laughs> and it was one of those instances that really uh, taught a lesson about uh, communicating needs and communicating the, the necessities of some of the things that we do in, in cancer. And it's often about information that we don't share quite easily. Um, uh, I was involved with a uh, program where we were looking for genetic mutations in special populations. And it turned out that um, one of those populations was in the African-American community, but the gene itself uh, didn't express itself fully across the community because our bias was that the community was homogeneous. When it turns out the African-American community is as diverse or even maybe more diverse because of migration patterns than some other communities. Communities. And we didn't know that. And again, it was embarrassing, um, but it really could have interfered with medical care until people uh, figured this out. Same thing is happening now in um, uh, providing uh, vaccines for human papillomavirus, where we know that it's proven to reduce cancers in adults when uh, adolescents are vaccinated, especially cervical cancer in women, but also may be related to head and neck cancers, specifically uh, oral cancers and um, rectal cancers. So, um, this is information that we need to share with our providers, and it's embarrassing. We don't always talk about these important things, but, but uh, if the providers and patients can share this in a respectful way, a way that everybody knows is, that could be a little bit embarrassing, it can help because knowing if someone is HPV positive or, or not can affect a number of parts of their treatment, and it would be good if we knew that. Um, there are a 
number of other incidences of implicit bias, but these are the sorts of things that I saw um, when um, I was going through through some ideas about what we, how we could bring this discussion out by talking about the things that we don't talk about in order to make sure that we understand um, about implicit bias. Much of, a lot of this has been the news recently about the transgender community um, where um, all of us are learning about um, uh, good care, whether it's uh, mammograms or pap smears um, for uh, trans transgender people who may be on hormones uh, that change how, how their body will, will process a lot of the um, chemotherapy drugs if they get cancer or vigilance in the transgender community. And again, we shouldn't just um, react to the, the, what we think we see, but ask a lot of questions and become partners in figuring out what's best care for people. Um, it's really important that we all work on this. And I think we've moved uh, in the right direction, but we're far from um, really getting to a point where the playing field is even for everybody. And um, this, it's not just between two people, but it's uh, in, in the system as well. So if we look even about management of side effects and pain management, um, pain may be different in different people. It's pretty well acknowledged in the cardiology community now that a chest pain in a woman who may be having a heart attack is different than the pattern we usually think about in men. Um, and everybody needs to be aware of that, both patients and families and providers. So uh, their gender may be an issue in, in uh, providing good care to a diverse population. Um, uh, some Alcoholics Anonymous groups, uh, because of uh, all the difficulties that people who join AA groups have had with um, substances, alcohol in the past, have a lot of trouble uh, when the oncology team would uh, recommend a pain medicine or even nausea medicine that may um, run the risk of addiction, even if it's done properly. And again, another diverse population that we really need to be respectful for. Um, we need to know that uh, some medications may be metabolized differently in different groups, and that may be because of genetic differences that we need to be aware of. Uh, the whole issue of bad pain medicines has been extremely difficult to handle, as we know, because of the opioid crisis that's not only facing the United States, but the world. Uh, however, uh, the, uh, patients and families who are dealing with cancer often find that they may have uh, less medicine uh, prescribed to them or the medicine is prescribed properly, but they can't get it in their community because the pharmacies in their communities don't have it or they may be so frightened about it that they don't want to take it. And often uh, a good community advocate, somebody who understands the problem, has a personal relationship with the family, can often help uh, not only uh, find the medicines in the area, but actually work with the families that under controlled circumstances, this is a different situation than what we read about in the paper in the general population. Um, those kinds of things are essential in, in providing good uh, care for cancer and 
all of the side effects as well as helping people uh, work to finish uh, and get better during and after treatment. Um, some dietary factors may be an issue. Um, I worked with a um, head and neck population where we had a number of um, Asian and Pacific Island patients. And what we found is that when patients needed to have feeding tubes put in and have a specialized um, uh, protein-based uh, supplements go into the tube, that patients who grew up in the Far East, often in rural communities, who um, did not have milk products as a child can't tolerate the same products as uh, patients who grew up in, um, in, in areas where they had refrigeration and they had milk products from when they were very young. We had to figure out what to do to get them the right calories respecting their nutritional needs. Um, again, very difficult to do, but um, we did it because there, we, had to, we had to recognize that this was a, a metabolically diverse population. Um, we've had patients who, for, um, uh, in their religious practice, have, often have fasting days, and that may um, conflict with their cancer treatment, and we have to learn how to negotiate those with patients and families. Uh, uh, most of the time, you know, that, that can easily be worked out. Um, religious guidelines can sometimes even affect some medications that we choose when heparin or insulin came from animals, uh, particularly cows or even uh, pigs. We really had to um, make sure that we could get the proper um, products for patients whose dietary restrictions because of their religious values didn't allow them to eat those products. Most of these products now are made um, from uh, genetically engineered sources and they're not directly from the animals. Or even transfusions in populations who did not want transfusions during or after surgery. So uh, I, I, over the course of you know, one career, seen lots of evidence and lots of situations where we really needed to take the diversity um, into account. And often we had to discover it along the way. As a group, I think we're doing better in um, working with these situations now. And that, that improvement is really because of a, a increased awareness and communication. And so when, um, when you're meeting your providers for the first time, um, be open about uh, an, a special situation that you may have. Ask questions. Ask, ask if your treatment will be um, metabolized differently, let's say, because of, um, of your, uh, your um, heredity. Uh, it's an important question, and it may not apply to you, but it may. Um, you can um, see if there are any... Uh, when, when, the, when the treatment plan is reviewed, make sure that the things that are addressed do not conflict with your religious beliefs. And if so, bring that up up front um, so that that can be addressed and whatever possible adjustments that can be made uh, can be made. Often that happens with people who um, have been through treatment before who if they know you're going to be getting treatment for a certain kind of cancer and are aware that these differences happen between groups or because of religious beliefs or hereditary characteristics, 
that they can alert you and your family to speak with the treatment team. It's, um, it's really, really, really important that good communication is really the way around making sure that the diversity in our community is taken into account in a, a serious way. Um, one of the other things that I was asked to speak about was uh, how to get copies of pathology reports, which is inherent for everybody um, in um, the process of getting diagnosed with cancer and often getting second opinions. Uh, the system has changed somewhat over the recent years. It used to be that people would actually have to get those little glass microscope slides and um, pick them up. They uh, could be sent, but they're fragile. So pick them up and, and bring them or pack them really properly so that they could go to the second opinion um, providers. Um, some, some of the uh, uh, specimens are actually in these wax, little wax blocks, and those have to be um, transported in a special way. Luckily, a lot of this has changed, and um, many of the labs, many of the pathology labs across the country have switched to a digital pathology system, which is really amazing to think that the pathologists are not looking through really um, high-powered microscopes anymore, but are looking at things on large TV screens that have been, where the images have been digitized. So if you are needing to get your pathology slides, make sure to ask um, what system is used and, and really verify exactly how you would go about bringing that information from one provider to another. So um, the last thing I will address is um, in this age of telehealth and um, as we're still in uh, pandemic times, um, what to do um, uh, for a telehealth visit because some, some either free consults or the initial part of a consult where a physical hasn't yet been done or some follow-up visits are done on telehealth. Uh, these can be quite frustrating to people who are not used to the technology, but most of the systems are adaptable for folks who just use the telephone. And sometimes the um, a telehealth visit will be on the phone, sometimes it will be on a screen, or sometimes it will be from a computer. So it's important to um, have a quiet place to make sure that whatever questions you have, you write down in advance so that the technology doesn't get in the way of your having your questions answered. Have a relative or um, a friend who you want to involve with the care who may be able to take notes, who may be able to help you with the questions. One of the odd benefits of the telehealth system is they can be involved in your care from wherever they are as long as they have an internet connection or a telephone if it's an audio telehealth call without having to travel to the city where you're, you're being treated. So um, in, involve them in figuring out what questions to ask and they can be on the call with you. Um, make sure that the day before that the uh, office of the provider has told you exactly how it's going to work, who's going to call who, which devices are going to be, making sure that um, of the time frame because sometimes providers and patients cross um, uh, time zones and we have to get that down. That's different than being in a room at the same time. Uh, and it works out better if you have at least a dry run or information before the call so that you're able to get the full clinical benefit of the call, not just struggle with the technology. 
Last thing I will address is that the uh, electronic revolution has also allowed us to see some uh, of notes from our providers, um, some uh, lab reports, results of lab tests, blood, urine, spinal fluid, um, all different body fluids, and um, some imaging reports uh, from, uh, that we've taken. These reports are often written in medical shorthand. We need to be really, really cautious about interpreting them without the context of our health and our cancer treatment and what it's supposed to be. Um, I've had a number of, uh, I've heard from colleagues and happened to myself where um, patients will be quite frightened when an, a, a, report, a, a value comes back in the abnormal range when it's supposed to be abnormal during cancer treatment. <laughs> It's, if it wasn't abnormal, we'd have to figure out why. Um, so it's important to know the context and how to read these things. Most of us are not trained to do this, especially in, um, in scans when things can sound quite scary. So if you get the report before someone from your provider's office has the chance to go over with you, don't panic. Uh, call or uh, message them. Make sure that there's some time set aside for you to re review this with either the provider or one of the physician extenders, either a nurse or a physician's assistant, or someone in the practice who understands the interpretation of these reports in the context of what uh, your situation is. There are a lot of, of abbreviations in the reports. Um, I, I, we've heard a few months ago about a situation where a patient looked at a report and saw it said SOB, and they were very upset because that's not a nice thing to say about somebody, but that SOB was medical, trans medical abbreviation for shortness of breath, and there was no ill will in, intended or, or meant. So um, if you read these things, make sure that you review them with a knowledgeable person from your provider's practice who can answer all your questions. So a lot of information in a short amount of time, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding. Your stellar presentation covering a lot of important information, and I know that there'll be questions for you, as there always are during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, and Dr. Palos is really her own healthcare team. She's a doctor of public health, she's a master's in social work, and she's an RN as well, so her own team going right there. And uh, Dr. Palos is former clinical protocol administration manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and researcher in healthcare disparities and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing what is cultural humility and how your care team practices cultural humility, how to self-advocate with healthcare staff, languages spoken, disability services, and other barriers to health equity, and then health literacy, how to become more knowledgeable and satisfied with your care, and lastly, your important role in shared decision-making. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Good afternoon, and Dr. Messner, thank you for that introduction and the invitation to participate in this important teleconference. It's an honor to work with this esteemed faculty and share this time with our callers. Dr. Fleischman gave us uh, the foundation for today's discussion, and I'm going to discuss a few other points which may be helpful in the context of today's uh, teleconference. All of us on this call 
understand that the cancer journey is a lifelong experience. There is much published research that indicates culture affects the cancer journey. We live in a society rich with diversity in our population. America is diverse by um, age, education, disabilities, ethnicity, language, and several other characteristics. This diversity shapes the experience of our cancer of our cancer experience and our view of the world. A person's worldview shapes the values which guide behavior and ultimately, again, shapes culture. In any interaction between a patient and provider, there are numerous worldviews. The worldviews of the healthcare team, which is built on Western medicine, as well as their personal worldviews. Then there are also the worldviews of our patients and their families, and those can also differ across generations or across regions, and again, by lived experiences. But what happens when diversity creates a disconnect between the patient and their care team? A disconnect which occurs when beliefs, values, practices, and preferences are not well understood, either by the team or the patient or their family. How can one actively participate in making decisions about um, their care or even advocating for their care preferences? But I'd like to sh uh, share a short story with uh, all of you. One afternoon, I was rushed to the emergency room for what I thought, or my family thought, was a possible heart attack. The moment we arrived and explained my symptoms, the healthcare team sprung into action. They quickly wheeled me into the ER, ER room and began working on me. I was having a hard time breathing, which hindered my ability to provide responses to the team's questions in English. The team was told my name was Guadalupe Palos. The physician quickly began to speak to me in Spanish. In between breaths, finally I was able to take a deep breath and ask, would you please speak to me in English? The room was quiet for a second, and then the physician checked my ID band and asked, isn't your name Guadalupe Palos? I said, yes, and then tried to explain how hard it was to translate their questions in Spanish to English and back to Spanish. I felt embarrassed and went on to explain that English was the language spoken in my home. The member placing my IV said, we wanted to speak to you in your language. Now I have a few questions for you. What went through your mind as I shared my story? Were there questions such as, why didn't she say English was her preferred language? Or how was the team supposed to know she preferred English, especially with a name like Guadalupe Palos? Maybe your thoughts focus on whether an emergency situation was the time to ask about preferences. Was there a failure to communicate? And if so, how can the possibility of these situations happening be minimized? And on the other hand, what factors help promote effective communication in this situation? A factor that influenced this interaction was a difference in our worldviews between the providers and, the, and myself as the patient. Again, remember, a worldview is the way a person perceives their reality and the way they act and respond to different uh, situations in their life. Worldviews are often based on lived experience, and because here in the United States we have a rich multicultural mosaic of people, worldviews can differ and clash. These clashes can contribute to disparities in health. And for example, even well-meaning professionals who believe they are culturally competent may have unconscious biases. 
That was part of what occurred in my story. Based on my name, Guadalupe Palos, the team made the assumption I spoke Spanish. Their intentions were to enhance communications and make me feel comfortable. Assumptions, though, can also contribute to implicit biases. And biases that are implicit can negatively affect interactions with patients as well as their quality of care, the diagnosis, treatment decisions, decisions, and even outcomes. Concerns about these clashes have led to an increased interest in implicit bias, which are often unconscious acts held by an individual. Characteristics that trigger implicit biases would be things like um, age, disabilities, obesity, race, uh, socioeconomic status, skin tone, religious preference, education, or even how well a person can um, understand or speak English. In an ideal world, healthcare providers would be completely free from bias. However, providers often have implicit and at times explicit biases similar to those of the general public. Implicit biases are those which are unconscious and they can be positive or negative. Explicit biases for the most part that we know about in our society are behaviors that are based um, on a conscious level and it's, it's behaviors such as discrimination and some of the other things we see playing in our society right now. Now, if a patient and a family recognize there are negative biases, it will reduce trust, communication, and decision-making with the team. Cultural competency and cultural humility are two concepts and processes being used to address implicit bias. Before going any further, it might help to pause and go over these terms, since providers and patients and their families don't always use the words in the same way. So what is meant by cultural humility and cultural competence and why are these words and actions critical in caring for patients with diverse backgrounds? Cultural competency is the ability to interact effectively with people of different cultures. And more important, the foundation of cultural competencies are based on the principles of trust, respect for diversity, equity, fairness, and social justice. Cultural humility goes beyond the concept of cultural competence. It refers to an attitude of humbleness and acknowledgement of one's limitation in the cultural knowledge of group. Now, you may be thinking, why is this information important in my cancer experience? Because both of these are a two-way process. Just as we expect our healthcare providers to practice cultural humility and cultural competence, we uh, patients and our families also need to practice or it would benefit them to practice cultural humility and cultural competence. In healthcare, it's helpful when providers readily admit that they're not experts in each other's cultures and that they want to learn. It helps when one, whether they be the patient or the healthcare provider, gives themselves permission to explore their thoughts or beliefs related to the lack of knowledge or feelings of discomforts when meeting people from certain groups. From this point of view, though, patient and their families are considered the teachers of their cultural norms, beliefs, values, and the providers are the learners. So that whole situation has turned around. For example, patients and families can share what their beliefs are about cancer, any practices or religious rights that may influence treatment plans. Um, and they can inform the team of who is included in their family, because it's not always family that we used to see long, long ago on sitcoms on TV. Families are very diverse now. But also, who's the main decision maker? Or even inform the providers if 
everyone in the family speaks English or if they need a translator. Families can also inform the team about times or when there's limited mobility for a patient or when there's issues related to reading abilities because we can't always make the assumption that all patients that we meet can't have the ability to read even in this time and age. So how can patients, their families and providers collectively support cultural competence and cultural humility? Well, just begin by learning about one's own culture. Sometimes we don't even know about our own culture. Increase self-awareness about our own beliefs and biases. And that takes, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to do, to really reflect and see where we have our own biases. Develop a positive attitude toward cultural differences instead of detachment or frustration. Build or grow skills for communication and interaction across cultures. And then again, become aware of, our, of one's own worldviews. It's helpful also to develop resources and partnerships with organizations working with communities that your patients and families uh, come from. The latter type of action can be done on an individual basis or a team basis. Social workers, case managers, chaplains, ethicists are just as important as physicians, advanced practice providers, and other medical team members when uh, developing or interacting with, um, with our patients. Patients can become their own self-advocate when healthcare staff may not understand or respect differences in their worldviews toward communication and decision-making. I'd like to go back to those questions. Was there a failure to communicate, and if so, how can these uh, types of situations be minimized? And on the other hand, what factors help promote effective communication? In this situation, there was a moment of miscommunication. Practicing self-advocacy helped change the dynamics when my language preference was made known to the team. And even more important, the team respected my preferences. Cultural humility and cultural competence was practiced by the patient and the healthcare team. Now, remember, cultural competence and humility doesn't require that you become an expert in every culture represented in your patient population or with your healthcare providers, because cultures and communities are always changing. This is not even an attainable goal. Cultural competence and humility are journeys of learning throughout one's life. Well, in closing, I'd just like to say we all recognize that cancer does not affect all people equally. Disparities in cancer care affects different groups based on all the characteristics I mentioned earlier. And it's also recognized that cancer outcomes are worse than people who experience these disparities. We can fight these disparities by practicing cultural competence and cultural humility. It's also important to remember diversity in our populations make our world richer, fosters creativity, innovation, and problem solving. And I'd like to invite any of our callers who have found ways to enhance their own self-advocacy and share decision-making that you share them with our other callers. So our next speakers are going to address how oncology social workers can support you in selecting a culturally competent healthcare team. Thank you for your time, and this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was outstanding. It was just a wonderful, stellar presentation, as always. And, and your examples are just so um, really resonate for many people on this call today. And I think that um, there'll be many questions for you. And I will take you up on that. We will ask people during the Q&A not just to ask questions, but you also can share 
if you've had an experience in which uh, you would like to share with others that really has helped you. So that's really um, that you'd like others to know about that they could try as well. So thank you. Okay, and um, well, thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Leanne Medina Martinez. And Ms. Marti Ms. Medina Martinez is a disparities program coordinator at Cancer Care. She's an oncology social worker. And Ms. Medina Martinez will be addressing what to consider when selecting a cancer care team and treatment facility, language is spoken and diversity of healthcare team, your important role in shared decision-making, tips to communicate with your healthcare team to determine if they are the best team for you, and how oncology social workers may provide support to you. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Medina Martinez. Hello, everybody. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Messner, and thank you all for being here today and allowing me to share this time with you. So I'm going to start off um, with what to consider when selecting a cancer care team and a treatment facility. So when you are selecting a cancer care team and the treatment facility, it is important that your care team fits your beliefs, values, and traditions. Selecting a team that has the ability to provide services in other languages other than English is very helpful in order to limit the barrier of communication, which will give you better understanding of your diagnosis, treatment options, and the ability to express concerns to the medical team. Diversity within the cancer care team should provide you with comfort in expressing your needs and priorities. Just as we just heard Dr. Pavel mention in her experience, it is important for you to be able to express what your needs are, your priorities, or your preferences are to the team that you're going to be working with. In, this, in considering um, what cancer care team and what treatment facility um, you are going to be working with, it's also important that you also think about what are you know, your religious beliefs and personal wishes. This brings me to the importance of a shared decision making. No medical decision should be made without your full consent and understanding. It's important that you speak up and express your desires and needs. Think about, think about religious beliefs, familial needs, and personal wishes. Think about what is important if there are holidays that are very important as part of your religion that you wish to be observed when it comes to your treatment and your appointments. Think about your familial needs. What are the needs of your family? Do you need to have a low impact kind of treatment in order for you to continue working because you need to provide income? Do you need to have appointments at certain times of the day because there are other activities that you have to take care of with your family? And think about your personal wishes. What are your desires? What are things that you are willing to do? What are things that you're not willing to do? What are the kinds of treatment options available to you based on these wishes? The healthcare professional will typically focus on making best medical and scientific course of action. And as a patient, you have the right to make sure that the medical and scientific options are in line with your beliefs, values, and traditions. Do not be afraid to start the conversation about your desires if your medical team does not initiate it. You have the option of bringing the conversation to them. In order to do that, uh, communicating with your healthcare team is important and will help you determine if they are the best team for you. So here are some tips on how you can determine if the healthcare team is best for you. You will want to find out about the diversity of the team. 
Oftentimes, this can be done visually by seeing the staff that is around at the care setting. If you are doing a telemedicine appointment, you might be able to see this if you are doing video where you can see different staff before you actually have your appointment with the doctor or just in conversation. You can also do your own research about the medical facilities and see what information is provided about their commitment to diversity and health equity. Ask if there are language services available, especially if you or your family member is a non-English speaker. If there is staff on site that can provide translation services or if they have access to translation services over the phone where you, you are present or if you are able to use family members or friends who can help translate in your native language. You want to ask questions about joint decision making. Take notes on reactions of the staff when you mention your desires and your priorities. This is important as far as letting you know, are they really listening? Are they taking into consideration what I, what, am I, what I am expressing or am I being dismissed? Make note of how willing the medical team is to provide you the time and space to ask questions, as well as how willing they are to use preferred pronouns and names, especially for patients of the LGBTQ plus community. Lastly, it should feel like a partnership between yourself and the healthcare team. If you feel like there is a lot of resistance or not acknowledging your desires or even entertaining conversations, then it might be time to consider another option. Some general tips in communicating with your healthcare team is to speak up and communicate your needs and priorities. Another option is to bring a loved one with you to appointments. They can provide support, and they can also keep notes during the appointment. They can also remind you of questions to ask if you happen to forget any. Another option is to connect with a patient navigator or a social worker on staff. These are all options as far as communicating with the medical team or the healthcare staff in order to provide you some extra support if you don't feel like you can bring up conversations on your own or just if you would like to have someone there. When a person is diagnosed with cancer, it seems that everyone is focused, and rightly so, on that person's physical well-being, treatment, side effects, doctor's visits, and tests. But we know there are other parts of life affected by cancer, such as self-image, work, family, friendships, and your approach to living. Oncology social workers understand these complex issues raised by cancer. More importantly, an oncology social worker knows that finding ways to cope with these concerns brings an enormous sense of relief to both the person with cancer and their loved ones. Oncology social workers are licensed professionals who counsel people affected by cancer, providing emotional support, and helping people access practical assistance. Oncology social workers can provide individual counseling, case management, support groups, locate services that help with home care or transportation or other financial assistance, and they can also guide people through the process of applying for social disability benefits or other forms of assistance available where you live. So consider connecting with an oncology social worker at any point in your cancer journey for assistance and support. And that concludes my part of the presentation, and I will turn it back over to Dr. Messner.
Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Medina Martinez. That was a superb presentation, stellar actually, and wonderful. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, so thank you so much. And um, I'm now just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then we're going to take your questions. So uh, some of you are already putting in your questions, but please um, you know, post your questions so that um, we'll be able to address as many of your questions as possible. So um, um, Cancer Care um, offers, is a national organization offering free programs and services nationally throughout the country. And what are those services? So we offer practical financial and co-payment assistance. We have a case management team. We offer support. We have a hope line. And often people will call us on our hope line and we'll ask a question, which our staff will help them with, and then we'll uh, review with them the other services we offer. So we do offer support to people. We have online support groups. We offer um, coping circles, um, a way to get support in, a, in another way in groups that are both educational and supportive. We also offer a pet assistance program for people who have a cat or a dog and they're not able to kind of either walk their dog or take care of a litter box or able to get food for their animal. We have a, a program to assist with this. Um, we also offer um, these programs about 75 per year, and we also do offer publications as well. So there's a whole variety of services that you can access from Cancer Care. You can call our Hope Line, and also for those of you who are international on the call, um, please know that you also may visit our website um, and post a question, and our staff will help you to access those resources in other parts of the world so that you don't feel like you can't get any help from us. We wouldn't want you to feel that at all. And now, um, with all that being said, um, we want you to now, we're going to move on to the Q&A, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And I'm going to ask Grace to explain to you how to cure for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Um, Grace. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the found key. Those of you in the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And I have a question for our online participants. Um, so this is uh, for Dr. Fleischman. Who in my healthcare team do I speak to if I have barriers to my healthcare treatment? Is it my oncologist or someone else? Well, your oncology team varies depending upon the setting in which you're treated. But the two common people in every cancer care setting that I know of in the United States are the oncologist and the oncology nurse. So I, I would certainly start with them. Uh, there may not be a social worker or, or a chaplain or someone in, right in that office that uh, may be available. Uh, but not right there. So I, I would start with them. Uh, if it's something that's related to the practice in general, there's often somebody identified as an, a practice manager. Uh, it may be uh, one of the nurses, could be uh, any of the disciplines who helps the practice uh, run along in everyday uh, scheduling and billing, and, and that would be a third person. Awesome, thank you. And for Dr. Palos, um, do healthcare teams consider a person's culture in terms of treatments and how they are treated? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, we heard Dr. Fleischman give uh, uh, the changes over time in care. And what we're seeing is, is the same situation is happening in cancer care. Whereas before, uh, the, the focus was let's just cure this cancer, 
Then the focus went with let's cure and manage this cancer. And now we're focusing on how can we make the quality of life for this individual better. And one of those the one of the items that they are really discussing now are what is the cultural background? What are the religious backgrounds? Because we have found out either by experience or by the published literature that if we do not pay attention to our patients' cultures, uh, religious background, and other characteristics, that it impacts their treatment, whether or not they're going to uh, follow the treatment plan, uh, whether or not they're even going to come back for therapy. You know, if you don't feel comfortable where you're going for therapy because no one uh, spoke your language or you felt like there was some negative bias, um, it's, it, it will keep, it will impact outcomes. So, yes, we are seeing changes. And as Dr. Fleischman said, if you feel that your needs are not being addressed, you can always go and report that, and it will not affect your care. You can go and speak to an advocate. There's patient advocates that are there. Um, if you can do some self-advocacy. Um, as uh, Carolyn mentioned, you can call Cancer Care, and the social workers they have there are excellent and well-trained, and they would be able to give you some tips on how to address these types of situations. This is a sensitive topic, not only for the patient and the family, but also for the healthcare providers. So, but don't be afraid to bring it up. Be your own self-advocate because, in the long run, it will affect or impact your outcomes of your your disease and of your treatment. And I hope that helps. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Paulus. Um, and um, a next question for Ms. Leanne uh, Medina Martinez. Um, we live in a small town, and my mother does not speak English. The hospital she is being treated at has translators, but I still feel like there is a disconnect in communication between my mother, the doctor, and the translator. What can we do? Do you have thoughts about that um, um, in terms of what this family can do? Yes. So um, living in a small town definitely does um, pose some access limits, but being that there are translators available, um, one of the options is, you know, maybe having a family member be a part of the conversation. Um, if, you know, there's still a disconnect as far as the needs, um, maybe having someone that understands the patient and what the patient is expressing be part of the conversation. Um, you know, think of it as kind of a community um, you know, between the medical team, the translator, the, your mom specifically in this situation, and yourself, or if there's any other family members that might be able to assist. If there aren't family members, maybe friends, or maybe, you know, someone from the town that, you know, she's close with. If there's, um, you know, any kind of religious affiliation, um, sometimes there are people um, who can serve as a broker, um, you know, to help with the conversation as well. Um, whether it's someone from a church or any kind of, you know, religious community or even if there's any kind of community services in that area um, might have, you know, might be helpful to bring someone to that appointment with her to assist with that. Excellent, excellent tips. I hope this is helpful. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, for... Um, Dr. Palos, I've tried explaining to my doctor about my culture, but I feel like he is disregarding it. What can I do? 
Well, um, regrettably, that happens in situations. And uh, do you remember, that, have you ever heard that saying that repetition is the best way to learn? If your doctor doesn't listen the first time, bring it up the second time. If they don't listen the third time, bring it up again. And after that, if you're not, if you're not being listened to, that almost can be interpreted as not respecting your values, your opinion, or even then your patient care. So there are avenues. And again, I'm, I just can't encourage patients and their family members to do this. Do not be afraid to speak up if you feel that there is a difference in the care because of negative biases or sometimes even open discrimination. I mean, it's a sensitive topic, but you, everyone is entitled to the best health care in the most comfortable way and the most respectable way that they can have. Um, the avenues within an institution or an office practice would vary, but you can always ask the question, who can I speak to about um, something I'm not comfortable with. If you don't want to say, who can I speak to because the doctor seems to ignore me? You know, you can say, you know, have it phrased a different way. If you have, um, you know, an, a very articulate family member that feels more comfortable, and, you know, then get that articulate family member to call in or a neighbor, because some of us don't have our family close to us. So if you have neighbors or folks from your faith-based uh, community and they're willing to go with you and advocate with you, Go ahead and do that. Do, uh, again, self-advocacy is critical in this cancer experience. It's a lifelong experience. So, you know, um, the more you can self-advocate and practice that, the better you'll be at it down the road. Uh, uh, so, so I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Pellows. And for Dr. Fleischman, my father has issues understanding and processing all the medical terms that the doctor is explaining. Are there ways to help him understand the information better? Yeah, uh, I, I, the, probably the best way is if someone can go who can uh, write questions down or ask questions or ask for clarifications, that would be ideal. If it's not a matter of just language, but it's a matter of jargon, uh, we use lots of abbreviations and um, Sometimes uh, we really need to be reminded to speak in as much as possible in regular everyday language so that uh, somebody with a non-medical background can understand. Uh, a nurse, again, the, the, the only other discipline that is pretty common across all of the different um, treatment settings where cancer is um, cancer care is given in the United States would be the next person to help, whether to ask for help or to um, find somebody who can help out uh, to, to translate what is said into common everyday language. Excellent, thank you. And um, uh, for um, Ms. Medina Martinez, um, how can we address the social determinants to advance cancer health equity? That's a great question. So um, a lot of advocacy is what needs to be done. You know, a lot of work is already being done in the field as far as, you know, health equity and addressing the disparities and the social determinants of health definitely plays, you know, a big role. Um, so a lot of work is being done in that. So advocating is um, something that goes a long way. Um, it does take some time. We don't often see changes right away, but 
that doesn't mean that we should be discouraged. So it all starts on the individual level. So if you're going to the appointments and you are advocating for yourself, that is the best way for you to start, you know, make sure that when you're meeting with your providers that you're, you know, speaking about your needs, your wants, your desires, what works best, you know, for yourself. And, you know, that starts, you know, the the flow for other people to be able to do that. You know, we're already seeing changes, as everyone else has mentioned, you know, in the healthcare setting. So we just have to continue advocating on every level that we have access to. Excellent. Superb. Thank you very much. And what a great way to, um, to conclude the, the question part of the program. Now we have, of course, um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, just wonderful. And um, I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions during this program. It really makes a tremendous difference. And the, the, uh, the discussion amongst the speakers and the participants really, really makes a difference in the call. So I want to thank all of you. Now, I do recognize that we have many more questions in queue than we can get to, so I want to acknowledge that, and I want to address these issues around the questions. So for those of you who are able to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question you'd like to ask, we'd like you to take all the information you learned today and bring it back to your healthcare team and utilize what you learned today with your healthcare team. They obviously know you the best in terms of your medical situation, and they are the ones who actually you want to work with them, and you want to practice what you've learned today. Also, if you need more assistance with advocacy, I think um, please do contact the cancer care staff. Um, you'll be getting at the end of today, well, tomorrow, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, and that will be an evaluation of the program, but it also will include all the resources that were mentioned on today's program that you can access. And um, certainly feel free to contact the Cancer Care staff for ongoing help with some of these questions, um, which are very, can be very challenging, which I think we've, that's a very, these are very challenging topics, and it's a very important program that we've done. We plan to do many more of these programs. Very important for all of you. Again, um, also, I don't want anyone to feel alone in coping with cancer and coping with these issues today. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support, and we're all here to help you. Um, so I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for your participation in today's program. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.